Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Our scripture reading is going to be from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10. Good to see each one of you here, some of you that are new. I'm Pastor Ben. We are going through 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we finished chapter 9 last week, but actually we're going to pick up with a little bit at the end of chapter 9 into chapter 10. I want you to imagine you are living in an ancient city with your family. Your city is surrounded by tribal groups Other nations, they're constantly attacking your city. Every night you have raiders who are coming in and they're breaking into homes, trying to kidnap people to sell them into slavery. You have uh, other gangs who are coming in in the middle of the day, stealing possessions and food. Your city is in constant chaos. Evil people dominate your city. There's no law and order. It's in disarray. It's out of control. So what do you need to do for your city? What would you do for your city if you wanted to fortify it, keep the bad people out, and keep law and order on the inside? Well, you'd probably build a wall around your city, and you probably have soldiers that would guard that wall. What would you think of a city that had the resources, maybe even the blocks and the the stone and the the masons and all the resources to build that wall, but they were just too lazy to do that. We would say they are foolish. In fact, Solomon describes a a person without self-control as a city broken down without walls. A man without self-control, Proverbs 25, 28 says, is like a city broken down, broken into, and left without walls. And so just imagine that type of city without walls, people living in chaos, lawless outsiders cause it to be out of control. It's, they're, they're evil people are dominating those within the city. There's a constant state of anarchy. And he says that 
is a good description of a person that lacks self-control. People without the protection, without the walls of self-control around their will and around their heart are like people who live in chaos. They, they live according to the chaos of their passions. They're ruled by their sinful desires. They live according to the anarchy of their impulses. That's what it's like to be a person without self-control. And that's the point Paul makes here at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul contends you need supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed. You need supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed. You need the protection of supernatural self-control to put your sinful desires at bay. You need supernatural Holy Spirit self-control to be able to please God, to be able to do the will of God found in the word of God. We all need supernatural self-control. We're going through this text of scripture from 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and now into 10. And here this is a, these, uh, the topic, the theme is speaking about Christian liberties, our Christian liberties we have in Christ. And so how does, how does this end here of self-control relate to our Christian liberties? Well, there, this is an important topic because... Paul here is showing us that sometimes with Christian liberties, we can take license with our Christian liberties. Our Christian liberties can sometimes lead us into sin. Remember chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul Paul starts this talk about Christian liberties, and he's talking about personal convictions. He's not talking about gospel convictions or, or even doctrinal convictions. Remember, we distinguish between those three. There's the first tier of gospel convictions and doctrinal convictions. And here, no, he's talking about personal convictions, Christian liberty convictions. And those include things like what you do with your time, how you spend your money, what you watch on TV, if you even watch TV, what social media platforms you're on, what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you don't wear, playing video games, vacation spots, tattoos, types of education. Remember we said Christian liberty issues are are areas the Bible is not clear on. And so you have the freedom to apply the scriptures in different ways from different people. And so there's going to be someone in this room that probably applies the scripture in a different way than you. And that's okay. You have the freedom in Christ to do that. But, but how do we make these decisions? How do we make these Christian liberty decisions? And we said, first of all, you have to consider biblical principle. Every, every conviction is based and should be based upon God's word. So first we consider biblical principles And then we looked in chapter 8 and then into chapter 9 that we must consider the spiritual effect it will have on others. It's not just we know God's word, but we also look at those around us and ask, how do I love people with my Christian convictions? And now at the end of chapter 9, going into chapter 10, Paul will add another consideration, and that is how it will affect us. Consider the spiritual effect it will have upon you. And so the focus now is changing to how do we apply our Christian convictions in a way that actually helps us spiritually? And yes, with Christian liberty issues, we can say, well, I can do that. The Bible doesn't say I can't do that. I can have this. And the answer is, yes, maybe you can. Maybe you have the freedom in Christ. But the more important question is, how will that affect you spiritually? 
is having, is exercising that freedom in Christ going to build you up? Is that freedom going to make you more like Christ? Or might that freedom cause you to stumble, to sin? That's what Paul was getting at at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, and particularly as he goes into chapter 10. Because isn't it true that many times Christians exercise their Christian liberties, and many times, sometimes I should say, it can ensnare them. It can actually pull them into spiritual failure. And so this is what we're talking about. We think about Christian convictions and we're asking, how does this affect me spiritually? And what we realize is actually there are times where we exercise our Christian liberties and it can lead us down a path that entangles us in sin. In fact, in chapter 10, Paul appealed to the church to consider the potential that you could spiritually fail and fall. Look at chapter 10, verse 5. In chapter 10, he reminded the church that Israel spiritually failed, even with its many blessings. Look at verse 5. Nevertheless, with most of them, with most of Israel, just think about that, with most of them, God was not pleased. That's spiritual failure right there. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. And then look at verse 12. Here's the clincher. Verse 12, therefore, here's the conclusion, let anyone, that's you, that's me, that's a missionary, that's a pastor, that's a theologian, anyone, all Christians, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Israel spiritually failed. We can spiritually fall. And Paul even lived in a constant state of awareness that he could spiritually fall as well. Look at the end of chapter 9, verse 27. He says, but I, that's Paul, discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be what? Should be disqualified. The Greek word for disqualified is used seven times in the New Testament. Each time it's used, it contrasts a person who believes God with a person who doesn't believe God. It contrasts a person who has true faith with a person who fails in his faith. So the Greek word disqualified means to fail the test of faith. So even the Apostle Paul was aware that he could fail to trust God. So again, here we're talking about spiritual failure, not trusting God, sinning against God, choosing to indulge in the depravity of your evil passions, continuing to do so, allowing temptation to overtake you, to have sin dominate you so that you're trapped and you're drowning in your selfish, sinful desires. In 1 Corinthians 10, he gives some examples. We're not going to look at those this morning, but it's important to understand what does spiritual failure look like. 1 Corinthians 10, he says it looks like complaining. It looks like immorality. It looks like idolatry. It looks like people who are grumbling and griping they're murmuring about those in their life that they don't like, maybe their parents, maybe their teachers, maybe their coworkers. They're standing by the water cooler talking about how they don't like someone else or just in their own heart, they have this bitterness, this sour spirit. So they fail to trust God. These are people who look with lust, just one look. Then two looks, they feel guilty, but then they have three looks and they find themselves in this whirlwind of lust in their minds. These are people who worship at the foot of the idol of entertainment or money or 
thrill-seeking, and they give their mind and their desires and their time and their money to those gods, and they look to those gods for peace, for satisfaction, for joy, for affirmation, and so they fail to trust God, and they're ensnared by that idol. And so in this text here, the Holy Spirit wants us to be aware that we are in a fight for our life. It's a spiritual fight. It's a spiritual war. And that's what Paul is talking about at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Chapter nine. I titled the sermon here, The Fight of Your Life, because that's what we're talking about. So the question is, how do you spiritually fight so you don't fail. Particularly in regard to Christian liberty issues, how do we protect our hearts from spiritual failure? Well, he gives the answer here in verses 24 through 27 with his own example. Paul fought for his spiritual life with the intensity of an athlete straining for first place. Look at verse 24. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So the illustration here is of an athlete in the Olympics or the Isthmian Games who pushes hard, who is laser focused, who doesn't let anything distract him or her. And so he says in verse 24, so run, run like that, run that you may obtain it. The word run is the imperative in this passage. It's the command that highlights the need to intensely trust the Lord. It it highlights the intensity in which we are to follow Christ. In fact, look at verse 25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Now, if you look at that sentence right there in verse 25, There's actually two verbs in that sentence. If you have an ESV, it might be difficult to see that. So what I thought I would do is I'd put up here another version. This is the Legacy Standard Bible, 1 Corinthians 9.25. And I want you to see there's two different verbs, and this is very important. Verse 25 says, now everyone who competes, so that's the first verb, in the games. And the next verb is this, exercises self-control. So if you're looking in in your ESV, the first verb is exercises. The second verb is self-control. And why is it important to understand both of these verbs, this distinction? Well, they emphasize different things. The word competes there reminds us of the intensity, of the effort, the struggle of our spiritual lives. The Greek word behind competes is, or exercise, if you're using the ESV, is agonizomai. You can hear in that agonize, agonizomai, agony, struggle. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, fight. That's the word agonizomai, fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says, at the end of his life, I have agonizomai, I have fought, I have wrestled, I have struggled, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. This word here, agonizomai, was used of two opponents who fought until there was only one person standing. This is the word used of a wrestler or of a boxer who doesn't stop until his opponent is pinned to the ground or knocked to the ground. This, this isn't the, the word used for your cute little Uno game you play or your Settlers of Catan, even though you might get, you know, be battling someone in that and get pretty heated. This is, this is the, the word used for an all-out fight. This is like a cage fight. This is like, this is like mixed martial arts fighting, two men kicking, stomping, punching, wrestling until the other person is in submission. So this is a description of Paul's spiritual life. This is how he competed. This is how he fought. This is how he lived. The fight here is a spiritual battle, a spiritual war against my sinful fleshly desires. I'm not competing against you. You're not competing against me. We're not competing against each other. The war is happening in here. 
and it's against our spiritual sinful desires, our sinful fleshly desires, I should say. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 11, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war in your soul. Your soul has a battle every day and it's your passions, it's your sinful desires at war with your soul. Your soul is under attack. The passions of your flesh fight for control. Your sinful habits dominate your routine. Your mind is invaded by lies. Deceptions and temptations pummel your heart. And if you're without Christ in here, if you don't know the Lord as your savior, you are without hope. You're without hope in and of yourself. You might bring your religious deeds, you might bring your effort and say that I can defeat my sin and my sinful desires with those, but the scripture says that's not true. 1 Corinthians 15, 57, the Bible says, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the only one who can defeat sin. He's the only one who can conquer our sinful desires, and he did that when he died on the cross for our sins. And when he died on that cross, he, he won the war over our sin. He won the war over Satan. He won the war over our sinful desires. And so we come to the Lord and trust by grace through faith that he saves us. And then as Christians, we live every day in that reality. We live by his grace through faith. The war still rages on. Satan is defeated, but Satan still battles and we still fight. We still live, but we live by grace, trusting his grace. Grace through faith. There's another verse where this word agonizomai is used. First, or it's Colossians 1.29. For this I toil, struggling, agonizomai. And if you look at this first part of this verse, you might say Paul's all on his own. He's struggling. He's wrestling with his sinful desires. But notice what he says. With all his, that's Jesus Christ's, energy. It's his grace. It's his work that he powerfully works within me. We're not on our own. We're not by ourselves. This is not get up, pull up your bootstraps, and try to the best you can to conquer sin. This is trust in the grace of Christ working through you, the grace applied to your heart. And so Paul here says that he's in a fight He's in the fight of his life. And Paul says we are in danger of spiritually failing. He taught that we are in a fight for our spiritual lives. So again, let's go back to the question, how do we fight? Particularly in regard to Christian liberty issues and areas, how do we protect our hearts from spiritual failure? And he gives the answer here, and the answer really is the point of the sermon, and that is through supernatural self-control. In fact, you can see this in verses 25 through 27. Paul gave five verbs that describe the spiritual discipline necessary to fight to win. Look at verse 25. Every athlete exercises, there's our agonizomai, compete, struggles. Then the next verb is the first verb to describe our spiritual fight, self-control in all things. The next two verbs are found in verse 26. I Do not run aimlessly. Third verb, I do not box as one beating the air. The last two verbs that describe the spiritual discipline necessary to fight, to win, are verse 27, I discipline my body. And the fifth verb is keep it under control. Now notice those five verbs there. Self-control, don't run aimlessly, don't box at nothing, discipline your body, keep it under control. What do all five of those verbs have in common? Look at those verbs. What do they all have in common? They all deal with what? With self-denial. 
with self-control, with self-discipline. It's almost like he just goes through these verses and he overemphasizes this. Of course, he doesn't overemphasize it, but it's almost like he does. And why did Paul emphasize this need for self-discipline, self-control? Well, what does he say in verse 27? Why does he discipline his body? Why does he have self-control? Verse 27, I don't want to be what? Disqualified. I don't want to spiritually fail the test. What does he say in chapter 10? I don't want you to displease God like Israel did. I don't want you to spiritually fall. So church, do you realize that you need supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed? That's what Paul's getting at in this text. And this is probably more difficult for us in our society than any society that has ever lived. We live in a society that is extremely over-the-top, self-indulgent. Our culture preaches all the time, do what you want, get what you want, buy what you want. If it feels good, have it. Take care of you. The old saying, to thine own self be true. There's even this idea out there that the most important spiritual need for you is is self-care. Make sure you have that self-care. And as we're learning, we're going to see that we need to take care of ourselves. But some people exalt that. The world preaches the message, gratify your desires, whatever they are. Do you feel like you're a girl, even if you're biologically a boy? No. Just want you to live that way. Do you want to eat that? Well, go ahead. If you want that, do that. This is the polar opposite of Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if you would come after me, do what? Let him deny himself, deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. See, the world's message is 100% opposite of Christ's message. The world's message is if it feels good, do it. Christ's message is, deny yourself and follow me. Do you remember the old Lay's potato chip commercials? There's someone in that commercial, and they get a bag of chips, and they have a chip there, and usually a guy or girl, and the narrator says, what? Betcha can't eat just one, right? And and it's just a funny, dumb commercial, but think about what it's telling us. You will lose self-control if you buy our product right? And that's a good thing, according to the commercial. Or Pringles, once you pop, you can't stop. Or to word it another way, once you pop, you have no (laughs) self-control. And again, I know those are just dumb commercials, but think of the message that the world preaches. Our society sells products that appeal to the cultural doctrine that you should, you deserve to fulfill your sinful desires. And so we have a society that has passions that are out of control. There's a story of a dad who was in a store shopping with his son. He was pushing his car around the store and, and the son started to get out of control. The son started saying, I want that, give me that, you know, trying to grab things grunting, screaming, yelling. And the dad would just hang his head and respond in embarrassment, Jimmy, don't do that. Jimmy, stop. But the boy just kept screaming. and Everyone kept looking over there and seeing what's going on. And the dad would keep saying, Jimmy, don't. Jimmy, stop. As the man was exiting the door, a lady felt sorry for him, came up to him, Pat him on the back and said, sir, don't be discouraged about your little boy, Jimmy. The man turned to her and said, ma'am, I don't think you get it. I am Jimmy. Some of you didn't get that. But, But that's kind of the description of our society, right? I mean, we are out of control. Our generation we're raising is 
fulfilling their own sinful desires. Our society encourages self-indulgence. And where does self-indulgence lead? Where does this out-of-control, sinful heart lead? It leads to self-destruction. The self-indulgent person is not new, though. Yes, probably our society struggles more than any other society, but listen to what Jesus said of the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Inside, you are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Paul warned in 2 Timothy 3, in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves without self-control. Would you agree that our culture has taken self-indulgence, a lack of self-control, and supersized it? I mean, we have at our fingertips, like no other society in history, every possible desire we could want. I mean, we have sweets in the fridge, mindless hours of entertainment, just one button push away. You can scroll and scroll and never run out of senseless information. You can shop till you drop and you don't even need money. All you need is a card to swipe. You can drink this and drink that. You can have another and another and not wake up to the morning with a hangover. You can commit immorality with a person on the street through a video online and now even through virtual reality. The life of the self-indulgent person at first doesn't seem that bad. It's just one look. It's just one drink. It's just one half hour of watching YouTube while you're supposed to be doing your schoolwork. It's just one image I'm looking at and then two and, well, then maybe more than that. Just one purchase on my credit card. It's just going over my credit limit a little bit and then more. And that's the deception of self-indulgence. It seems harmless. It seems like it starts so small, but it's like a small strain of bacteria that infects and spreads and overtakes and then kills. There's an old Washington Post story about a man named Walden Pentergast of Tampa Bay, Florida. And this guy decided one night he was going to go out and he was going to get a drink at the bar. So he's just going to have one drink. And so he went and got a drink and then decided to have two drinks. So he got two and then, well, what's another one? And eventually he found himself intoxicated, but he thought he'd drive himself home. And so he drove himself home. And as he was going home, he drove by a house and saw the lights were out. So he parked and decided to go up to the house and it was unlocked. So he walked inside and he thought, you know, I think I'll take a couple things for myself. So he pulled out some things and put them in his car, and then he thought, oh, uh, you know, he's drunk. And so he thought, well, maybe I should burn the house down to hide any evidence that I was here. So that's what he did. He burnt the house down, set it on fire, and got in his car and took off. Went around the block and finally found his house. And when he came up to his house, his house was on fire. There were fire trucks around his house. And he realized, really, probably not till the next day, that he had robbed his own house and set it on fire. Isn't that really the stupidity of our sin? Isn't that really a good example of the stupidity of self-indulgence? Right? It's, it's just one drink. It's one thought. It's one word, which leads to another. And soon, before you even realize it, your life is on fire. And self-indulgence leads to sin, to spiritual destruction. It drowns families in debt. It leads to adultery and divorce. It makes employees unproductive and sometimes unemployed. And it leads millions and millions of people to hell. I was thinking of some examples in the Old Testament of those who were self-indulgent. Adam rejected self-control to follow his wife into sin and plunged humanity into depravity. Cain didn't control his anger, and he killed his brother and was marked with a curse. It was through a lack of self-control Esau rejected his birthright 
and was trapped in bitterness. Moses lost self-control, his self-control of his temper, and he couldn't enter into the promised land. Achan desired the fine things of Jericho. He lacked self-control and hid the riches under his tent, and later he was executed. Samson's heart lusted in indulgence. He gave up to any pretty girl that walked by, and it led to his destruction. David's eyes looked with lust upon Bathsheba, and he gave into his self-control, into um, self-indulgence, and sinned against God. And he faced many sorrowful consequences. Ahab had no self-control when he coveted another man's vineyard, and he had that man killed. Elisha's servant couldn't control his greed, and he received the riches of Naaman, and then he received the leprosy of Naaman as well. And the point is, the scripture is full of examples of people who walk down the path of self-indulgence and find themselves in the place of destruction. And church, this is what Paul was talking about here. What is the opposite of self-indulgence? It's self-control. And so we need supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed. Notice verse 25. He says, we need this in all things, self-control in all things. This word self-control speaks of one's ability to have power over your own desires. Self-control means you exercise restraint over your impulses, your emotions, your appetites, and your desires. If you want to write down a definition for self-control, this is one I came up with. Biblical self-control is the supernatural ability to say no to my desires and yes to God's desires, motivated by eternal joy. In other words, it's saying no to present, now gratification for future joy in the Lord. So you can see that in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Why? They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so what is our motivation? We delay present gratification of the flesh for the future imperishable prize of joy with the Savior. And so we need supernatural self-control. Notice the next two verbs in verse 26 that highlight this need for self-control. Verse 26, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. So Paul illustrates the Christian's need for self-control with these two types of athletes. One is a runner, one is a boxer. And both of them are disciplining their efforts to save their energy so they can stay focused on their goal. Yesterday, we went to a bunch of soccer games for these little kids, and uh, we had one that started at 8.15, and then we had another one, and then the next one started at 11.15. And that one was, for us, was for six, seven, eight-year-olds. I think it's that age range. And uh, it was hot, especially at 11.15. And we saw these, some of these little kids. One of them was one of my little kids. Anyways, they were running in the playground, playing gaga ball before their soccer game, right? They're getting hot. They're getting sweaty. They're getting tired. And then it's 11.15, and they go to their game, and it's, you know, you're supposed to play a soccer game, right? Now, they're kids, so it doesn't matter, right? They're, they should do that. They can do that, whatever. But if it, was a, if it was like a high competition sporting event, we would say what? That's foolish. Like, you shouldn't do that, right? Why? You should save your energy for that which is most important. That's what Paul is talking about here. Successful athletes exercise self-control. Every action, every effort, every moment is used for one purpose. And what is that? It's for success. So notice the last two verbs in verse 27 as we conclude here. Paul says, but I discipline my body. That's the fourth verb. And then keep it under control. The word discipline there actually means to beat up. It means to bruise the verb keep it under control literally means to enslave, to keep as one's slave. Think of a master and a slave. A slave works 
for his master. A slave obeys. A slave lives in complete submission to that master. So who is the slave in verse 27? Who's the slave? It's the body. He's saying, I, I keep my body. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul was not teaching asceticism or self-flagellation. Paul was not encouraging you to hurt your body for spiritual purposes. But Paul was teaching this. He was saying that self-control, self-discipline is painful. It's painful. Your body needs to live in submission to God's spirit and to God's word. And that will mean that sometimes your body has pain. It's difficult to say no to what your body wants. It means sometimes going without. It means that sometimes you even feel in your body like you're suffering, but it's for a greater eternal purpose. We need self-control, supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed. Do you think that we really realize this as Christians? how important this is. As I was studying this, I was thinking, I don't think that the church in America really understands how serious this actually is. Do you realize in Acts chapter 24, when Paul got up to preach to Felix, that he actually preached the gospel and he included self-control in there? Acts 24, 25, he reasoned about righteousness, self-control and judgment. And Felix heard it, rich guy who doesn't like self-control. He likes self-indulgent. And he said, go away from me, Paul. I don't want to hear that. Do you realize the scriptures are very clear that a person who lives a self-impulsive, flesh-driven life will not inherit the kingdom of God? I mean, just think about some of these verses. I'm not going to go through all these Galatians 5, 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 10, Ephesians 5, 5, 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. I mean, those who habitually indulge in immorality, those who regularly are intoxicated, those who impulsively steal, those who ride the roller coaster of anger and arguing, the scripture is absolutely 100% clear you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this is something you, you, know, you would preach maybe to an unbeliever, but this is something that God wants the church to know. If you live a life of self-indulgence in these things, the scripture is clear, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, speaking of the unrighteous in the day of judgment. And who are those people? Those who indulge the flesh in corrupt desires. And this should cause every one of us to tremble and to ask, will I stand on that day before Christ and be found in him? Now, you might be listening and you think, well, Pastor Ben, it sounds like you're, you're preaching work salvation. No, I'm not preaching work salvation. This is not saying self-control saves. This is saying Self-indulgence leads you to hell. Self-indulgence leads you to hell. Only Jesus saves. You can't save yourself. Your works can't save yourself. Your religion can't save you. Your efforts can't save you. You are not saved by your works. Only Jesus' work on the cross can save. But your works prove your faith is genuine. Think about it this way. Self-control is not how you get into the family of God, nor is it how you stay in the family of God. But self-control is how you live in the family of God. So Paul says here, I fight for self-control. I direct all my effort and all my energy in Christ. I endure the pain of saying no to my flesh. So you need supernatural self-control in order to spiritually succeed. 
Let me just conclude with some applications. Let me first talk to those who are parents, maybe grandparents that spend a lot of time with kids. It is so essential, it's so essential that we train our children to have self-control. I believe one of the most important habits parents need to instill in their kids is self-control. One of the most important habits that you as parents need to instill in your kids is self-control. And parents, you have it very difficult today. If you have little children, the fight, I think, is more difficult than it ever has been. Because, yes, you have freedom to give your kids social media. You have freedom to put a screen in front of your little child. You have the freedom to have your kids play endless hours of video games or to binge watch TV all day on Saturday. But the question for parents in regard to these Christian liberty issues is not, can your children do this? But is it best for them to do this? Are you teaching them self-control or are you teaching them to be self-indulgent? How are we training our kids to have self-control. And parents, I think it starts at the very, very youngest age when that little two-year-old says, get me, ah, 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 I want ah, ah, right? And they're grunting. That child needs to learn self-control. You don't get what you grunt for. I didn't, I just made that up. So there you go. You can quote me on that. I don't think I ever used that with my kids, but. And sometimes, The youngest age, I should say not sometimes, the youngest age definitely needs to learn to say no to their desires. And sometimes that's painful. If you want to know what I mean, you can talk to me afterwards. And that's a a part of parenting. Part of teaching self-control to our kids is teaching daily habits. It means teaching them to get up at a decent hour. It means teaching them to go to bed at a decent hour. I think it means teaching them to spend time with God. One of the reasons we give these devotionals to these kids for tree trackers is so you as parents can help your kids have a daily habit of getting up in the morning and it's not going and playing with my toys and it's not going and playing on the iPad. It's getting up with my Bible and sitting with a devotional and spending time with God and getting in the habit of that. And yes, maybe kids aren't understanding the full reason why you're doing those kind of things. But we do as parents. It's about teaching them self-control. It's teaching them habits of life. And as teens and as adults, we need to ask ourselves, how are we exercising self-control? I mean, think about it. We are to have self-control in our body. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So what we put in our mouth, it matters to God. We're to have self-control in our thoughts. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, or 2 Corinthians 10, 5, we are to take every, every thought, captive to obey Christ. So every thought you think is either obedient or disobedient. So you you need to have self-control in your thoughts. You say, well, I don't know how to do that, Pastor Ben. My thoughts are out of control. That's why you need to meditate on God's word. See, meditating on God's word gives you obedient thoughts and trains your mind to have self-control by the power of the Holy Spirit. We are to have self-control in our finances. How much of our spending is impulsive? driving down the road and, oh, look at Starbucks. Oh, I think I'll get a $10 Starbucks. Or, oh, uh, look at that. My, oh, I can buy that and I'll buy that and I'll buy that and I'll buy that. And every swipe, every automatic subscription, every click to buy something should be under the control of the Holy Spirit. And we need self-control in our finances. We need self-control in our time. We're to redeem the time. That means every day, every moment, we will give an account for. So we need self-control. But really, it's not just self-control, isn't it? It's supernatural self-control. This is not the sermon to say, okay, go running tomorrow because you need some exercise. You know, go on that diet tomorrow. Hope you do better next time. This is the, the sermon that says, You cannot do it unless you get on your knees before God, you confess your sin, and you ask him for help. 
You need the Holy Spirit's help. Galatians chapter 5 says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. If you walk in submission to the Holy Spirit and to his word, the Bible says he gives you self-control, Galatians chapter 5. So this is the sermon that says, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's, let's confess our sin and recognize, listen, all of us, especially as Americans, I mean, we struggle with self-control, don't we? Let's confess that to the Lord. Now, let's ask his Holy Spirit to so control us, our minds, our time, our lives, so that we please the Lord. We say no to our desires and yes to his word. Church, we need supernatural self-control. Let's pray. Would you bow with me in prayer? Church, sermons like this, I think, all convict us to go to the Lord. And so if the Lord impressed something on your mind, would you bring that before him? Maybe there was a particular sin or struggle that you're going through right now. Something that you realize you're transgressing the Lord. You're transgressing against the Lord. You're sinning against him. There's something that you're You have in your life, you know, you need to make right. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Trust his grace and his work on the cross to cleanse your sin. You might be in here today and you're not a believer. You are trapped in your sin, aren't you? You can't overcome it, can you? And you may have tried, but you're trapped. And I'm just going to say, you are going to be trapped to the day you die because only Jesus Christ can free you. So this is the sermon that says, come to Jesus. Find forgiveness and cleansing in him. Would you pray in your seat as we consider God's word? Father, we are thankful for the work of Christ for us on the cross. When we think about many of the things we talked about, our hearts get heavy with the guilt of our own sin. Oh Lord, we realize that there's so many days when we don't submit to your spirit. When we don't take thoughts captive. We don't live in a way that honors you. So, Lord, we're so thankful we can run back to you. You're our Father who loves us. You're our Father who sent Christ to live, die, for, and for us on the cross. You're a Father who forgives, who cleanses from all unrighteousness. Thank you, Lord, for that. Lord, I think about that person in this room right now that's sitting here and they are under deep conviction because they don't know you. Lord, I pray the sorrow of their sin, the web of their iniquity will so weigh them down that, Lord, they will only be able to look up to you and trust you as their Savior. We thank you for Christ in Jesus' name. We're going to have a time now of communion before the Lord. This is a time of examination for us as believers. We've, I've already encouraged you to do that in this little time we've had. This is also a time for us to worship the Lord and consider his work for us on the cross. And it's okay, I'll have you guys come in just a moment, that's fine. And uh, this is a time for us to consider what Christ has done for us and to worship him that for uh, being, his body being broken, his blood being shed. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're living in obedience with Jesus, to Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to celebrate the Lord's table with us. If you're not 
a believer, you're not walking in obedience with the Lord, then I just encourage you to enjoy the singing, but please don't partake of the Lord's table. In just a moment, these men will come by and they'll um, pass out the elements. So they'll only pass it out to those who raise their hands. So if you would like one, please raise your hand in just a moment. We're going to have the instrumental group up here play the first, first chorus of Just As I Am. Is that right? And uh, I'd like us to all to bow our heads and just consider the words of this song. And then once we start singing, I'll have the men come up and, and do that. So just as I am means, just a second, let me explain it real quick. Sorry. Just as I am means that we are coming without any other religious uh, credit, without any boasting. We're coming just as we are with our, with our sin. We have nothing to offer to the Lord but our sin. And he takes that and forgives us through the blood of Christ. And so just as I am means I, I'm coming just as I am. I don't have anything I'm bringing before the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm a good person. See, I, I brought you this. Lord, I'm a good person. I've, I've done this. Lord, look at all my righteousness. No, we say, nope, none of that, none of that. Just, just as I am, which, that means I'm coming with just my sin. And then I have no plea, no excuse. Oh, Lord, I'm not really that bad. No, no plea. The only plea I have is that Jesus' blood was shed for me. Let's listen to this first verse, and then let's consider the Lord's work for us. would you come forward if you would like one of the elements would you please raise your hand as the men come back and we'll partake of the Lord's table after we sing together just as I am would you stay seated and sing out considering the words of the song worshiping the Lord
Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you remember Christ's broken body with me? We also remember Christ shed his blood for our sins. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Would you remember Christ shed blood with me? For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim Christ's death, his resurrection, and his coming through this song.
Amen. Here in the power of Christ will stand. God bless you. You're dismissed.